Hey everybody, welcome back to We Are Movies. As always, I'm Johnny Mockney. And, you know, recording this podcast, I have to watch and rewatch so many movies and, and take notes. And uh, I'm making it sound like work, but it's it's honestly, it's really, it's really nice. But um, th- this week, I had a great time rediscovering a movie and kind of gaining a newfound love for it. And an even better time recording this episode. I have a wonderful guest this week. His name is Esteban Tuma. He's an incredible stand-up comedian. I was a fan of his before I ever met him, actually. Um, Esteban's been on Comedy Central. He's opened for a lot of really great stand-up comedians like uh, Michelle Wolf and Mark Norman, just to name a couple. And if you are in Michigan... And you're free. Uh, you can get a chance to see him live next month. He'll be at the Independent Comedy Club in Hamtramck the weekend of the 22nd. So uh, definitely get tickets to that. If you can, I have a link in the description of this episode for that show. Um, the Independent Comedy Club, also just a really great club uh, run by wonderful people. Um, so you definitely should support it and um, obviously support Esteban. And I think you'll really enjoy the show. Um and if you're not convinced of that, here's an hour of the two of us talking <laughs> coming up pretty soon. Um, as always, like, I mean, when I record with comics on this show, sometimes it's just constant uh, jokes of just kind of maybe ribbing on the movie or joking about the context around the movie. Sometimes it's serious, in-depth analysis. Um, and Esteban's one of those guys who's, who's very funny and very quick-witted, and I think you'll hear that, but at the same time, once he gets into it, like he's dead serious, and I love that. Like when we were talking about movies, it's it's uh, it's all about the movie, really. It doesn't really matter what we do <laughs> outside of this podcast. Um, but uh, I had a really great time doing it, and uh, oh yeah, I probably should talk about the movie. We talked about the Coen Brothers film Barton Fink, uh, starring John Turturro, John Goodman. Um, as I said, written and directed by the Coen brothers, shot by the great Roger Deakins as well. This is a movie that isn't often floated as one of their greatest, I think, or at least not in like the mainstream, you know, kind of pop culture idea of, of the Coen brothers. A lot of, you know, filmy people really love it. And um, I had a great time rediscovering this movie. And this was the movie that Esteban wanted to talk about from the beginning. Um, so I knew it was important to him and I was really excited to talk about it with him. And I think the podcast came out really well. So without any further ado, please enjoy this funny and highly educational conversation on Barton Fink. So as I was, we're doing it. (laughs) Yay, it's finally happening. It is, it's really happening. Yeah, no, we probably talked about this in, I'm willing to say, I think October. Um, It's been a really long time. It feels like two years. It feels like the Clinton administration, probably, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was the year Barton Fink won the the Palm d'Or or whatever. We talked about this when Barton Fink won the Palm d'Or. We were like, right, hey, right. We, should, we should talk about this brand new film, Barton Fink, on the podcast. <laughs> right. I remember you uh, faxing me some information about this. <laughs> yeah. I, um, yeah, no, I was like, yeah, this John Turturro, big, big career ahead of him. And, um, right. We, it was, I, I'd say, because we met for the first time last summer, I think. 
and it, it was shortly after that that we uh, that we started talking about this. So I'm I'm glad we're we're finally doing it, and God can't stop us now. There's there's nothing in the way. <laughs> in your face, God. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This. Yeah. So everybody knows this episode was made in defiance of God. Um, <laughs> That's correct. Right. I don't think I don't think any other podcast has been promoted with with words like that. So I'm happy to be the first. Um, <laughs> so um i remember bringing it up but I, I do you do you consider yourself to be like a movie person very much at all or just kind of a casual movie person totally well i used to be way more into uh cinema than i am now i i have stopped it a little bit but um i kind of discovered the world of cinema like seriously in college and uh I think Barton Fink was one of the movies that kind of like awoke something in me uh, of like structure and uh, storytelling and photography and all these elements that I was kind of like starting to study in college too, in classes. So it kind of brought up a lot of that. And uh, um, a lot of like my uh, college days were spent, my college nights were spent just me watching pirated movies that I would buy across the street from the university. I, 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 this is in Quito, Ecuador. There was like a bunch of like little video stores that would sell like pirated DVD movies. And so I would buy it, you know, for like a dollar or whatever. So I would buy like piles of movies and I would just like go at night in my room and just watch them all like one after another so that's kind of how I got into it um and then afterwards you know um like I don't know probably like five ten years ago I kind of like decreased the amount of movies I would consume just because of lack of time but it's still something that really resonates with me uh so so yeah um I I lived in Thailand for a bit and I used to get I um uh, I, I used to get pirated movies there all the time too. Did, did you get the ones in like, were they in like little plastic bags usually, not cases? <laughs> there were those and I did get those, but like piracy was such a, was such a big business that uh, these small stores would do anything to kind of like be better than others. So there were some that were like super nice and professional. Like you could buy like, I, I remember I was a big Woody Allen fan and they had like the complete discover like complete uh, movie, this not discography, whatever. Like filmography. Um, filmography of Woody Allen. Like it's earliest years and it's like 10 movies and they would come in like a beautiful case and like the, the it was, everything was printed perfectly and everything. And it had like a giant logo, like ugly logo of the store in <laughs> the front of it. Like, <laughs> So, so it was, uh, it was a big part of it. So, yeah. but there was also the ones that were like, just like a plastic bag with yeah. the, the little printing sheet on it, sometimes black and white. Sometimes like awfully printed where it's like, it's like <laughs> white text over like a lighter colored image. So like, you can't even read it. Right. It looks terrible. Yeah. 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 No, I, I like that. You, you know, when you've really gotten into the weeds of, of, uh, buying pirated movies when you know the good and bad quality like the whole <laughs> totally <laughs> yeah and you get to see also those kind of like uh combined movies like uh, three movies in one and it's like Jean-Claude Van Damme and yeah. Steven yeah. Seagal and like 
Rushmore by Wes Anderson. <laughs> it's like, oh, three in one. It's really funny. It's like whenever you're at like a Walmart and there's like 20 action movies in one, uh, there's there's about a 5% chance that one of them is going to be watchable because <laughs> right. as a collection, it's worth $5 apparently. Um, right. But I, I did come up with a rule recently that if I'm out and about and there's ever like a Steven Seagal multi-movie pack, I have to get it. It's just kind of like a, it's like, it's like if you're a tourist and if like, if there's a snow globe or a shot glass anywhere, you have to get it. I just need to get Right. It's the any, collection. Yeah. Any dollar general I'm at, I'm like, shit. All right. I guess I'm getting, I guess I'm getting this, this one. There's an unlimited amount it. of cigar movies. So. <laughs> well, and I, I don't know if you've talked about how much you've talked about this before, but a question for you is like, what kind of, what, what are, what's your kind of like movies that you enjoy? Well, collect something specifically you're kind uh, of into horror is that your thing i mean that's fair to say i love all kinds of movies like i really yeah. do um very similarly the coen brothers was a huge part of when i was first getting into movies i think i i think it's that i, I was probably 12 maybe i think i i watched i had a little collection of coen brothers movies on dvd that i convinced my parents to get me um i started watching like tarantino movies when i was allowed to and kind of like slowly watched you know like reservoir dogs and stuff like that um yeah and then and then got more into genres and um i i do yeah there's like a blu-ray collection in the living room but um i i, I try to like i keep I can like keep an open mind all the time about the movies that i watch but there was definitely a phase for everything like i think i don't know if you're this way like when i was a little kid every week i was into a new thing and i had to decorate my room that way oh my god a hundred percent yes so it was like cowboys one week and then it was knights or whatever and <laughs> i think dinosaurs. It, yeah oh dinosaurs for sure yeah and so like in terms of movies it's been the same exact thing even sometimes the exact same thing where it's like one week it's cowboys and then it's dinosaurs or whatever like <laughs> right I mean, totally yeah. <laughs> space <laughs> you're right. like watching apollo 13 <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah so yeah but that's how it's, it's it's gone but like i think the reason i do this podcast specifically is like i think everybody i think everybody from like super movie people to people who are only kind of passively movie people they all everyone has a favorite movie and everyone is i think in some way defined by some of the movies that they love um totally. but you said you were getting into it in college were you taking film classes in college or it was just kind of at the same time you're getting into yeah it. i yeah i did take a couple of film classes uh classes in college um and uh, my major was communications so i had a bunch of like media classes um so yeah so a, a big part of my classes were kind of like you know classic film class analyzing things and uh, i had a good teacher that showed us some um great movies um so it was it was very much part of it like and that process of like figuring something in class, finding something interesting, and then just crossing the street to buy pirated movies with other people in the class who were also very much getting into cinema. So we would just recommend movies to each other and stuff like that. So it was very much part of it. Okay, cool. I, I, I think it's fascinating that Barton Fink was an early movie that got you into a lot of the conventions of film and like how things are shot and things like that where I think for me and for a lot of people that I tend to meet Barton Fink is that one that you watch early on 
and you're like mm, this isn't as fun as the other ones right. as the, like the other coen brothers movies and then you get older and you start to actually like understand it a mo- bit more and, and totally. see more of what it's going for and, and i'll say like boldly and i know you told me this is like your favorite and then fargo is maybe your second favorite is that right yeah i mean it it kind of ebbs and flows you know that's why i was doubting which one to do um but i have a it has a special place in my heart because of that, because it was like a, this kind of revelation movie. I don't know how much of it was also like that same fact that it's like, it's not the movie, it's not the Cohen movie that everybody chooses. And, you know, there's, a, there's also that little side of me who's like, well, I'm not going to choose the most uh, racing right. Arizona or whatever, you know what I mean? So, yeah. uh, uh, so I don't know. There's that little side of me who has, um, uh, that notion of like exclusivity or like oh you haven't seen you haven't watched Barton Fink or whatever <laughs> but I think the coolest thing about it is that uh to me was to figure out how um I, I love these uh, some some Cohen mo- uh, the thing I like the, about the Cohen brothers uh the most is that uh they toast the line so much between like uh blockbuster cinema and uh auteur kind of like very weird conceptual stuff Um, and I like how much this movie jumps from one place to the other in a very specific uh, uh, way you know and like the structure the three-act structure of the movie has like these switches that are just like so impactful and so weird that um, are fascinating to me and not only that but the movie also talks about writing a movie. So it does so in a very deliberate deliberate way, uh, which is also something that the Coens do so well, which is like talking about the art they're making uh, in a lot of their movies. Um, so I find that fascinating in this movie. Yeah, well, well and I, I, I find I found that exact same thing fascinating this time. That's something that I think, the first time I watched it, I was I was fascinated by it with that, the tonal shifts and the fact that you can't quite figure out what kind of movie it is, like what genre it's supposed to be. It's a bit of a, you know, it's, it's, it's a drama. It's a bit of a noir. It's a bit of a horror movie. Um, It's all these little things. And at the the same time, when I was first getting into the Coen brothers, I was like, okay, I see what their thing is. They do like these crime capers that are kind of funny. Like that's what Fargo is. And that's what, uh, you know, um, like blood, blood simple blood is, simple. and and to, to a goofier extent, something like Raising Arizona, and it's like you think you got their thing down, and then right. this movie kind of threw a wrench in the, all of that because from the beginning it doesn't have that forward momentum of like, okay, I see where an outcome could be going here, right? Because there's no. Yeah you don't know what the inciting incident is until the movie has ended. That's one of the things I love about it. There, there is an inciting incident. It's, it's when Barton Fink uh, makes a noise complaint about the room next to him, but it's not until the film is wrapped up that we go, Oh wait, that was the inciting incident. And I didn't even notice it. Right. Um, Which is like so clever and fascinating to me. And, and what you were saying about how it talks about art in the process I also think that's fascinating because if you actually look at the Coens as guys, they don't do that at all. They, they, they're very technical. And apparently they're actually, people have said on set, they're like almost kind of boring and very clinical about the process. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so I feel like this movie is A, 
them getting a chance to talk about art and B, them kind of making fun of people who talk about art. It's, it's... <laughs> oh, that's a good, I like that. I like that a lot. That's true. I, I also feel like the fact of, uh, there's something special about movies. There's something really interesting about movies, right? Like mm -hmm. it's, it's an art form that takes a lot of people to make. It takes a lot of money to make. And so in order for it to exist, it needs to have some sort of mass appeal, right? Like it, so you can't have like a vision for a movie that doesn't appeal to a group of people, right? So it's like this contrast of being an art form that can be in a way a, a, a sole vision of a director and writer, or in this case, both of them uh, versus doing something that has to be appealing. And I think that conflict of cinema, that kind of structure of what cinema does, this kind of social element of cinema is what this movie is about. I think it's a movie about film in a way because Barton Fink's uh, desires to reach kind of like this social uh, collective and talk about them and create stories about them and, uh, and the studio, the, like the main pressure comes from that, from the studio being like, you have to, it's, you just have to write a B movie and make mm -hmm. it interesting. Just figure, just tell a story. And he has this kind of desire of like pouring his heart out into this, uh, uh, this ideology, this social ideology. So I think that kind of, that conflict is really interesting as far as like the whole concept of, of, of the movie goes. And I think that the ending in that way might be deliberate that the weird ending that doesn't really resolve anything or doesn't give the the character uh, uh, a chance to like a, a redeemable chance or a new reality it's just like he's still trapped um it i think it kind of reflects on that same notion of like not being able to to conclude this this process or not or not giving the audience the satisfaction almost of yeah. having something solid or having like a Wallace Berry picture, you know, you don't, you're <laughs> not going to get the satisfaction of like, oh, and he's going to be all right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that's really fascinating on this movie. It's really interesting. And I think it's a little ambiguous as to whether or not they're trying to say he, that he is going to be all right or not. I, I think there's, there are ways to look at it as though he's had maybe in the long run, like a positive uh, uh, sort of uh, rehabilitation out of what's happened, or if he's just kind of signed his death warrant or signed his soul over, so to speak, um, right. uh, to this company. I think that I, the first question I want to ask is, because you were talking about Barton's whole thing is that he wants to make this like collective. He wants to, when he's in a theater, because he goes from, going from being a theater to being a contract screenwriter. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's kind of the early, that's what the plot of the movie is. But he, he wants to make stories like for the working people. That's his uh -huh. thing. You know, he doesn't right. want, and there's a very funny kind of, there, it's not in your face, but the irony early on of him being at this incredibly fancy dinner party saying like, oh, but I don't <laughs> want to go to Hollywood and be like schmoozing with people. I got to be here with the common folk as he's here at right. this ridiculous party. Um, and so that's like something he's dealing with where he like wants to represent these working people. And then the whole conflict is the fact that he just like, 
doesn't really give a shit about what they have to say. Like, yes, the absolutely. Whole, the whole thing of the re- running gag of him talking to John Goodman, who's like this classic, like working class man. And every time he's like, well, I can tell you some stories. He's like, stories. I'm sure you could. And he interrupts <laughs> him and then doesn't, right. <laughs> doesn't let him tell him. Like, and so- that's his, that's his, Herbert, he's like, why are you doing this? And he's like, because you don't listen. Yeah. And uh, as far as that goes, like, I was noticing this when I rewatched the movie recently that the start of the movie is so much uh, about this, right? You have like the movie starts with a shot of the, of like the curtain uh, rod kind of like lowering down. And then you have a, a, a worker, like someone uh, working on the theater and he's extremely bored and he's not doing anything. And you have an actor sitting on the side, just reading a newspaper. They don't care about the play. They're not listening to these words of like, of what he thinks is going to create this new reality for the working man. And he's, Barton Fink has his back to him. He's not even, he's not even seeing him. And I think it kind of plays on that. <laughs> um, and I think that the, you know, what you're saying about like <laughs> these people in the restaurant, I love the tone of this movie. I know it's not for everybody, but like the, like the humor of those characters, like being, like so such a cartoon representation of wealth you know everything yeah. is such a cartoon representation or like uh the head of the studio um oh michael lerner michael yes. lerner he was oscar oh my god what a performance what a performance it's incredible yeah. or uh tony shalhoub too yeah. who is incredible in this movie they're just like so over the top but the movie has this kind of such a dark tone behind it that that it doesn't seem like that funny or it doesn't seem so uh, absurd but it's really I find it so funny like the scene where he kisses his feet oh my god yes I die laughing it's just so funny because Michael Lerner uh has this like assistant played by John Polito who's also For a while, he was like a Cohen's regular. He's also in Miller's Crossing, and he's uh, he's in uh, The Big Lebowski uh, at one right. point. But yeah, he gives him like the guy kind of says something like sort of reasonable, criticizing Barton, and Michael Lerner just snaps and fires him, demands he kisses <laughs> right. his feet. The guy leaves, and then he kisses his feet. Um, and, the, and the I've always said like good acting or good storytelling in general is not the same as realism. It can be realism. But some people only equate realism to what's good. They're like, a good performance is only something that's naturalistic that I can say, oh, that looks like something that happened in real life. None of these characters are verbatim or like really even close to real people you meet in real life. But they're so captivating and definitely still, they're still driving home like a type of person, like something, it's an exaggeration of a type of person, but it clearly comes from some kind of truth. You know, these are guys, the Coens are guys that have been on the other side of the table talking to studio heads, you know, early in their career and stuff like that. And they're definitely drawing from something, you know? Absolutely. That's, that's a great observation because uh, it's really, all of these performances are so great in that sense, because they are very exaggerated, but but they bring some. They bring a lot of humanity in it. And John Goodman's role, for example, like uh, that scene where he's like trying to convince him to get into the floor with him so yeah. that he could wrestle. Like <laughs> he's like, come on, yeah, come on. <laughs> and he looks so silly. And like in general, when you, I imagine them pitching this movie and being like, okay, he goes from this like 
nice big man who is like trying to convince him to wrestle with his funny face to like being basically a representation of of the devil engulfed in flames and how do you keep that normal how do you keep that in a normal way it's 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 absurd you know what i mean yeah incredible no i i i agree and i think that i think that this movie makes use of john goodman maybe better than any movie ever has with him and i think i think he's one of our greatest living character actors and he at this time in 1991 john goodman is the dad from roseanne right like he's had other (laughs) movies but he's he's cuddly he's he's got this warm smile and this movie makes great use of two modes of john goodman where for a lot of the movie you're like oh he's just this like warm friendly you know teddy bear kind of guy and then at at one point in the movie you reminded oh john goodman is also a terrifying presence he's this big burly man with an incredible frame a very low voice uh you know could murder you very easily if you wanted to and it also takes advantage of that and by the end of it you're like terrified of john goodman that he's absolutely with very little movement and with few like big lines there's just moments with him you're like and his performance is incredible um one thing I think rewatching the movie, and I really love this, uh, is that for, like I said, for a chunk of the movie, he's very friendly to Barton and he sort of, he has that neighborly quality. But when you rewatch it, it seems much more than before. Like a lot of that sort of corny gung-ho-ness, I'm now reading, maybe now that I've seen the movie, I'm now reading that as like, oh, he's very patronizing towards Barton. Yes, and he's plotting like a revenge or like uh, an encounter because of of everything that's happened. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and after that, like their initial meeting when um, he makes the noise complaint and I, Barton makes the noise complaint. And then like, I, I just love, I love how the scene is shot. It's so terrifying where you hear John <laughs> Goodman pick up the phone and the camera just follows like what we know is him on the other side of the wall, just around out into the right. hallway. And then he stops at the door that's that to me is such a like that is an incredible fear of mine that's so terrifying you're in this hotel room and the guy you made the noise complaint about next door knows that you made it and he's just <laughs> straight over uh, but then yeah he turns out to be nice and then re-watching that scene i feel like john goodman is clearly giving him like a three strikes and you're out kind of thing because that i could oh, tell you some stories that line i could tell you some stories he says it three times right um, he first says it like he says it early on and then he and, and john Turturro, you know barton interrupts him and then he says it again and the barton interrupts him again and and, and john goodman's clearly like kind of annoyed by how he's being interrupted mm-hmm. and at the end of it he says it one last time before he leaves and that feels as though the feeling and then he kind of very friendly kind of gets up and he's like well anyway i'll be next door that's the feeling of him like all right i've decided i'm gonna make this guy's life a living hell Right. I've, I've given Absolutely. him a chance and he doesn't listen, you know? Right. Totally. Absolutely. I think it's also fascinating that um, Barton doesn't uh, give up on him. Like he's still like, even after everything that happens or when the police uh, reaches out to him, he's not, he's not going to sell him. So he's not, uh, he's scared of him at the end of the movie, but he's also not willing to give him away or like to um, 
or to give him to the police. You know what I mean? Like, it seems like he's willing to do that too. So it, there's, there's a fascinating uh, connection there with, with this notion of, or his notion of like the working man and trying not to sell out to him. But, he's, but there's also this, his, the idea of his loneliness and how he, even despite the fact that of what he's done and he's seen him kill these two policemen and, and set the building on fire or whatever, uh, he's, he's still like the only friend uh, he has, you know, he's the only human connection he has in this kind of like hellish or metaphor for hell uh, hotel. Yeah. Well, and one thing I really love in that final interaction is when he's totally at the mercy of John Goodman, of Charlie, is this guy, at least that's the name that he says he has. Turns mm -hmm. out his real name is Munt. Uh, but Charlie tells him that whole, like, you know, you don't listen, that whole monologue. And when he says, I'm sorry to Charlie, it doesn't feel like he's trying to talk his way out and survive. It seems very sincere that he's yeah. now, it's hitting him everything that he's saying to him he actually it rings true he's these are not just the ramblings of a madman he hears what he's saying and he's kind of like you're right i don't listen you know right yes you're right yeah absolutely yeah um so the question i originally i guess i was getting to and then i got sidetracked was i do you empathize at all with barton in this particularly as because uh, like as a comic like you're a writer i'm sure you think as well a lot about you know, the, the purpose of what you're writing and things like that. Do, like, how much do you empathize with him? How much do you feel the opposite? Like, how's your relationship with him as a character go throughout the movie? Oh man, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I relate to, I relate to him a lot because it does feel like a lot of the things as a creative person, uh, you want to believe that your art has some sort of purpose uh right and sometimes uh you kind of give up whatever purpose you give to your art just to have some sort of success or just to you know uh make it more popular more accessible or whatever right uh it happens for example when i make ch uh, jokes early on i used to make a lot more jokes about like being latino or whatever and i would play with some stereotypes that uh don't necessarily represent who I am, but they would hit well. So I would be like, oh, well, you know. Um, so managing those things, I can see a connection uh, with him. Um, but overall, like his, he starts the movie as a flawed uh, person, like a, a person who doesn't, who, who believes that he uh, has a calling, that, but he doesn't understand what he's talking about. Um, so I think uh, in that sense, uh, once you understand that, it's hard to connect with him directly in that sense because because you understand immediately that he that he's that he's wrong. But I don't know. I mean, John Turturro also has this like uh, it, it it's it's such a passive role of his it's such as like he's such a shy person and he's so uh coward and so um afraid of taking of doing a real action that that i also feel a little bit related i i do relate to that too um of this need of like what should i do what 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 can i do i don't know how to do this or like 
having people having expectations over me, right? Like his face when the when uh, when the head of the studio, Lerner's character, is like, "We're all expecting great things," yeah. and the door closes on him. Like that look, I relate so much to that. It's like, oh my god, wait, what? Yeah, <laughs> I don't want that type of responsibility, right? And so, and where do we, where do you start? How do you start? Those kind of things, like that, I relate so much to that fear of like having a deadline and not having an idea of how to really start things. I'm Mike. And I'm Allison. We've both been guests on We Are Movies before. We love talking movies with Johnny. But I'm a jealous boy. You are. That's why we've decided to talk movies with, with each other. We started our own podcast called You, you Made, made me, me Watch. Each week we make each other watch a movie the other has never seen. You Made Me Watch. New episodes every Friday. Well, and that, I mean, brings me to the fact that they wrote this movie as they were had they had writer's block trying to write oh, Miller's right. Crossing. I read about that. Yeah. Yeah. They're writing Miller's Crossing and they ended up writing this movie instead because of their writer's block, which is fascinating. And so when you think about that and you think about the, this is all a movie where you have this character who has writer's block, that this feels more than anything like a, a movie where they have a surrogate character for themselves. Um, where a lot of the times like Cohen's protagonists are kind of like you're 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 sort of supposed to laugh at them like they're misanthropic and you know you, you think about like uh, in Fargo you're supposed to laugh at Jerry Lundergaard because he's kind of an idiot and he gets himself into this worse situation and right um, and, and, and stuff like that happens quite often in their movies yeah, there's but- always some kind of like vulner- vulnerability to them right like yes yeah, but then what's fascinating about this movie is they're both empathizing with Barton Fink. They're saying that like Barton represents like a definite like anxiety that they have, but then also they punish him throughout the entire movie in this way that's like like I guess they're punishing themselves a little bit trying to like reconcile the fact that they are like these people making such a prestige art form and doing it far above any regular people, yet they're making movies about, like, like at the time they're writing uh, Miller's Crossing. It's a crime movie about, you know, people in the mob. And it's like, the, this is not anything that they have any f- firsthand knowledge of. And uh, it's an extreme case, but like, like, I definitely think that that's something that, and that's something that's still like very relevant today is like Hollywood loves to backpat over who they're representing and stuff like that. But it's like, <laughs> how often is it really left up to the right people to represent what they're trying to do? Like they love to go like, ah, we made a movie for the working class and they pat themselves on the back and it's like, well, who loves it? All of you guys love the product that you just made. (laughs) Did you you ask the working class? (laughs) Right. (laughs) And you know, it's fascinating too, that they've, uh, that, they've been very successful at, at what they do, right? Like, yeah. I think it, it shows a little bit this, this notion of like how this, this debate of like whether to pour your heart out into a movie that nobody will watch versus doing something like a wrestling picture with Wallace Berry. Yeah. Um, so how do you balance those things? And it's so fascinating that they did it on having a writer's block debating all of these things and then find so much success with with their movies because i you see a like they've been incredibly successful not only they produce like incredibly well thought movies uh that have 
a very deep meaning and have a very concise way to see uh, the entire piece as an art form. Um, but they're also like, a lot of them have done pretty well in the box office. So yeah. walking that line and balancing that line after making this movie seems fascinating to me. It's yeah. really interesting. Well, I, and the sort of the resolution that we get with Barton's character is sort of similar to like the type of model that the Coens have had in the, the types of movies they make where like he he, want, he has to write this wrestling picture. He doesn't know the first thing about wrestling. He's not interested in, you know, and in movies in general, but like particularly these B movies. I love when he's watching the dailies from this one wrestling movie. Just, <laughs> I will destroy you. Right. <laughs> it's the same take over and over. And it's like mind numbing. Uh, and so he's he's trying to write this. And then eventually he writes a script that's very soulful. He considers it his best work. Um, it has, it ends with lines that are literally the exact same ending lines as the play that he just put on. Um, oh, um, I didn't notice that. Yeah, that whole, like, we're going to be hearing from that kid one day and not just from a, and I don't mean a postcard. It's, oh, yeah. Is that in the in the movie? It's in the play that they're performing at the very beginning. Of right, the right, right. And then it's the, when he walks in on the detectives reading a screenplay, it's the ending of a screenplay. So it's quite literally the play that he just wrote, um, which is funny. Uh, oh, I didn't catch that. That's fascinating. Yeah. It, and so he, he does that and then you think about how like the Coens are these guys who make movies that are on paper, like crime thrillers, a mob movie, uh, you know, things like th things that are very marketable, like genre stuff, a Western, right. you know, stuff like that. But then all of their movies in practice are idiosyncratic comedies with like, um, with like a strange offbeat sense of humor and oftentimes more symbolism than you would expect more, mm -hmm. um, kind of ambiguous themes and story elements and stuff like that where like it's like they're playing within the confines of a genre that they've been given but then they use it yes. as an excuse to make something much more personal and different and, and bizarre and it, and I think that's almost like the that's sort of the journey that they're giving Barton in his own writing um but I yeah that's a great observation I agree with that and I think also like it, it comes a lot to the um, to the decisions that their characters make. I think it's there's something really interesting on on how uh, Barton thinks uh, character uh, Cohen brothers characters deal with action or movement. Like if you think, for example, uh, of uh, the Big Lebowski, uh, you have a character that takes no action. Right, like he's an extremely passive uh, character. Like everything that happens in Big Lebowski happens to him. Like yeah. someone else does things and he just has to deal with the consequences of that. Like he, he doesn't take a step towards doing something. Right. And in, in this movie, for example, you have kind of like that same notion of like, he has to write the script, but he can't manage to do that. And like, and you will always see these elements of like how these characters play with that. And so um, I, I think because their characters are so uh, flawed or so difficult to, they have so, much, so many problems trying to figure out that action, um, which is like number one step on like what they teach you in a, in a screenwriting class, right? It's like, oh, your character has to do something too. And it's like, 
playing with that element seems fascinating to me when they put these characters into into the middle of these you know uh, into a western or into like this crime movie right um and so much of it depends on like the actions some characters do not take in 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 their movies uh which i think is fascinating about about their movies especially um well, not especially, but I've, I've noticed that more in like movies that have some more comical undertones, uh, like this one, like Big Lebowski. Uh, I find that fascinating too. I think that's really interesting. They excel specifically. They've in almost all of their movies. There's this type of character where they do they do a really good job doing a one or two scene character who oftentimes shows up behind a desk. It's so incredibly common in their movies, <laughs> yeah. like more than you'd expect. Even like. You know, obviously in this movie, you have Michael Lerner who's behind a desk uh, and he's maybe the most incredible supporting character in the film. Uh, You have, you know, Tony Shalhoub. You have Steve Buscemi as Chet. Literally, Chet, the guy who works behind the counter at the hotel, ascends from the ground, first of all, to go with your your hell imagery. Exactly, from the underworld, basically. I I also love that in that scene, he, um, uh, Barton rings a bell and Steve Buscemi comes out of the ground. Oh my and God, yes. After the bell has rang, it's just got this really, like it's a broken bell. So there's this just strange light tone that's really just spooky. Yes. And then uh, Steve Buscemi comes up and just touches the bell to stop it. And you realize, oh, that's coming from the bell. I thought maybe it was the soundtrack just saying this is an eerie scene. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. That is so brilliant to me. And I I actually, the sound uh for for this movie is incredible but is and um and i don't know if this is because i just this is the last one i saw i i i didn't i haven't paid that much attention to other uh coen brothers movies where where they put so much emphasis in sound but for example just the sound of the door in the hotel opening to the to the ac outside or like that vacuum sound that the the door has like the emphasis they put on the fly for example or what we were talking about the steps at the door uh the call on the other room um it it, there's such an importance to the ring and what i I find it fascinating uh, about that scene with the with the bell that steve buscemi stops it is uh i was i was watching the movie and i watched that part and then i replayed that that scene just like I went back like 10 seconds and I couldn't hear the bell anymore. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because your brain gets used to the sound, like your, your brain hears the initial sound and then the sound kind of diminishes. But when I ba- went back, I didn't, I didn't see it huh. there. So I just saw Steve Buscemi touching the bell and I couldn't, I didn't see the sounds. I didn't hear the sound stopping, wow. um, which I don't know. I just found it kind of interesting. It is one of those sounds that you don't notice you're hearing until it stops. Right. And so that, and that is why it's like such brilliant sound design in that moment. Yeah. Um, and I, this is a movie that more than a lot of their movies pays very close attention to like room sounds, little things like the rustling of clothes uh, when somebody moves. There's, uh, I love when he first goes into the room, there's just this little moment where there's like a notepad and a pen on it and he moves the pen and it's, you see just the little dust, the dust. like the, the, this little spot where the dust didn't hit the pad because the pen was <laughs> right. there. Uh, and and the, you hear just kind of the rustling of the pen against the paper when he moves it. Um, stuff like that is, there's so much attention paid to that. And I was actually interested to see, like I was looking up their inspirations, their, for like the style of the movie. 
and one of the things I guess is they pointed out like uh, Polanski's films like The Tenant and um, uh, Repulsion um, were an inspiration and for, for honestly the movie that I thought of the most watching this was uh, David Lynch's Eraserhead uh, oh, watching this again yeah. where and I hadn't seen that movie the first time I watched it but having seen Eraser had another David Lynch stuff. That's almost the biggest thing that I see in this movie. Besides the fact that John Turturro looks like the guy in Eraserhead with his hairstyle, like <laughs> yeah. all of those, like the very just like paying attention to the little room sounds. There's the added fact that right outside his window is just a brick wall. There's you know that seems like uh-huh. a bit of a joke. Um, a lot kind of, of like the, the neuroticism of the character. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, the, the the sort of ambiguous paranormal nature of the hotel, like the fact that you said it, a lot of people, some people have theorized that it's literally supposed to be hell and that John Goodman is the devil. Um, right. And you don't see anybody else who lives here besides the two of them. It, it does have like a very otherworldly nature to it. And that's also something that's present in Eraserhead and other David Lynch things, which is like there there's might be something supernatural here. I'm not going to tell you, but it definitely feels like there is. Um, right. And you can see in like the, you know, the elevator guy, he looks old. He's almost like, it, it it's almost reminds you of like, you know, the, the guy that takes, that crosses the river into the stick, like crosses yeah. the sticks or whatever, you know, yeah. just this old soul in the elevator. And people have pointed out of the fact that that six is repeated three times in that elevator scene. Oh, um, I never noticed so, that. Yeah, he's like, yeah, yeah. He's like, uh, what floor are you going? Six, six, six. And then they go to the floor. So, um, so it has all of these elements. And of course, like if you see the sets, they're, they're just like that hotel looks like it's been everybody that works or that appears in that hotel seems like a ghost i mean it's such a clear uh image of that so yeah that's fascinating and speaking of which like the climax of the film when uh after we found out that john goodman is actually a serial killer um and we have the two cops there with barton and like the the way that i love the way that barton says like he goes charlie's back it's hot like he knows from the fact that he's hot and sweaty that charlie's back there's like this 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 supernatural aura to the character of charlie that when he's it's so hot that the the glue on the uh wallpaper peels off so like that's a reoccurring thing that the wallpaper's peeling off and then when Charlie's finally returning at the end, we see that it's peeling off outside again. And then right. in this case, it's literally hot. He's literally bringing fire with him. We don't know how the fire was started. There's just fire <laughs> where he right. is. Right, yes, on all the walls. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, which plays with a, this supernatural thing. Like it's not, you don't believe that he was like putting gasoline before coming up on the stairs. Like how did that happen? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think this is the type of movie that if people watch it and they're not satisfied by the sort of meta story that's happening here, the the symbolism and um, the themes, they're probably so pissed when the movie ends. Yeah, and I agree. There's like, you know, there's so little resolution. We don't know what's in this box that was given to him right. at the end. There's a moment with the lady on the beach who looks exactly like this lady in this picture that Barton's been looking at in his hotel room. The only bit of art in the whole hotel room is this, this right. lady on a beach, like shield, sh- shielding her eyes. 
he goes to a beach there's this lady he talks to she hits the exact same pose and that's how it ends and i could see so many guys watching this movie and going like what like yeah Yeah. And, and i can see like i've heard people try to literally interpret that ending to say what the movie literally means that like oh that means the whole movie is just a psychotic break and he's still in his hotel looking at that picture and Hmm. i'm like that's fine but i don't think that's what they're like i don't think the coens are trying to say there's anything literal about looking at that lady at the end it seems that it's about reality i i think like about him he's now in the picture you know where he was outside of it the whole time and the the thing i was thinking watching it this time was that maybe he's like um and maybe and maybe i'd like to hear your thoughts on this that Mm -hmm. he's been outside of the topics that he writes about so often and then now the type of guy that he writes about john goodman has just like pulled him into the darkest depths of of what humans can do and yeah. you know he's dealt with murder and covering it up and all of this stuff that now he's in the movie he is in the world that he writes about like maybe that's the feeling oh interesting scene. i kind of like that i like that idea it is a it is a very difficult um it it, it does it, it is very obscure it's not really clear um of course you know the box being having the head of the wife is like of the of the woman as i'm thinking of seven now uh <laughs> having the head of the woman seems like that's what it is right it's hinted but but yeah the um with the 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 picture and the ending it's it's hard to tell but what i think is like there there is ocean imagery during the movie several times and it's a very violent uh presence the sea before before seeing this little picture, this little painting. Um, <clears throat> when he decides to go to Hollywood, the, the, the establishing shot of LA or of, of, of that is like just a giant wave crashing into a rock, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's another uh, scene where we see the ocean also, the water splashing. Um, I think it's right after uh, we, uh, we uh, they show the the uh, we see the the body of the of the woman, uh, but uh, but in the picture in the painting, and at the end of the movie, the sea seems a bit calm, right? Yeah. It seems like at least in the image, it it seems very calm, like there's no there's no movement, and and John Turturro's character has reached a point where he's no longer even even though he's probably carrying the head of a woman in a box uh, and that he is absolutely trapped uh, with like his, his best work, what he considers his best work will never see the light of day. And he is now trapped in this hell. There's a calmness to him at that. Like he kind of has given up on something. And then there's like the image of this, of the sea, just kind of like, uh, relaxed there and then I love that the that there's a diving bird right at the end I don't know if that was like added to it or just like that happened while they were filming it but if but but it just gives a little bit of like uh, a conflict to that peacefulness you know it's that final like moment of impact that we cut to black on which makes it a great way to end 
that shot. But yeah, I always thought that too, that John Turturro's performance in that final scene where for so much of the movie, he's like kind of neurotic or he's, he's on edge or he's very meek. Then there's the scenes where he's a little insane and so up his own ass. Uh, And in that scene, there is some sort of inner peace and whether it's him giving up or him maybe just having had some sort of epiphany and understanding, like something has happened where this is a man who has completed some kind of arc and we don't entirely know what that arc is. Like there's an internal logic to the movie. Yes. It could have been that he gave up completely on his, on his role as the, working class hero or it could yeah. be that he's completely defeated or it could be that he is satis- satisfied with having written his this movie even though it's not going to be produced yeah, yeah right. I don't know. it is one of the things that he has to save from the burning building is this uh the script that he wrote uh, it's just that in the box with the that probably has a head in it <laughs> right oh he has the script at the end right yes he- yeah uh, on the beach yes yeah and um, I love that, yeah, I love that, that he seems to have like kind of reached this piece and it's up to us to kind of figure out whether it's a good or bad piece. Uh, Cause he is sort of trapped as Michael Lerner tells him, he's gonna write movies for Capitol Pictures. None of them are gonna be produced. So they're right. just going to own everything he's written and nobody's going to see it, <laughs> which is <laughs> right. the worst thing an artist, a worst situation an artist could ever <laughs> worst, <before>. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it might just be a defeat, but it also just might be acceptance of like, maybe I should have tried to be an artist in a system that is not conducive to being an artist or, or they just wanted him to just write a plug in all the pieces type of B movie. And that's what he should have done from the beginning. And um that's yeah (laughs) yeah if he gives up on these on the uh this grandiose view of his work um i feel like maybe there's this point where it's like well if if i give up if i gave up on that then there's it doesn't matter it does nothing matters yeah it doesn't matter that i'm holding a human head on a box (laughs) right right but i think obviously of course like the ambiguity was uh purposeful like mm. i they they wanted the movie to end in this very big question mark um and considering their writer's block and their intention with the movies i think it's also kind of like a good representation of like them being like where's our career career heading maybe you know like yeah what are we going to do with this are we going to play the hollywood uh, manual and do the three-act structure for uh, and sell stories and make uh, a lot of money for uh, a bunch of uh, producers or are we going to try to tell stories that resonate uh, with people you know well and let me offer a an optimistic reading of the movie of the movie's ending which is that Uh, If we're going to look at it the way I was saying, where he at the end of the movie is in the picture now, where he's now lived the life to an extent, he's lived the life that he tries to write about that now, like at the bottom of like, just like every possible terrible thing that could happen to him has happened to him, including the fact that his parents and uncle were most likely murdered by John Goodman. It's sort of, it's sort of like a passive line that he like, that oh yeah i i paid a visit to your parents like nice folks and then <laughs> right. i'm on the phone it's like oh yeah your parents probably got brutally murdered um 
and and that's never fully resolved either but right like he where everything's been taken from him but he's now in this position where now more than ever in his life he is more qualified to be the artist that he wants to be too because he has lived the life and and, and like has received all of the harsh realities that a working class person or like a real a quote-unquote like real people uh experience that he's no longer some intellectual who uses big words from the sidelines like he's now in it and it maybe is now enabled to actually be that artist because he can write from his own life his own perspective that he has which I, that might be a more optimistic reading of it but just maybe that could be where the inner peace comes from is like i've I finally found the thing that I've been conflicted about. Like the cl clearly the thing, all the posturing and all the lecturing he does about wanting to have a real people's theater could very well just come from this insecurity that he knows he can never fully achieve that because he's not one of those people. He is just an intellectual. So like at the end of it, he's no longer just an intellectual. I, that, that's kind of what I... That's interesting. I like that. I like the idea a lot of him kind of like realizing that he's not that. Um, <laughs> I don't know if there's, I don't know if there's like the notion of him being able to now after living that being able to express that in his art, because I think what it, what does seem clear to me is that his art is blocked, yeah. you know, like he is not going to be able to do anything uh, anymore. But I think that also might be his, his salvation or his he's like i don't right. i have understood i understand i went through this through this journey i understand a little bit more that i need to listen maybe or that i don't that i don't understand these people and so now i can just look into i just look i can just look into the ocean and yeah yeah and just see birds diving getting fish <laughs> I didn't find a way to uh, incorporate this um, organically, but I feel like we'd be remiss to not mention uh, John Mahoney's character, Bill, uh, this like great writer that uh, um, Barton looks up to who he meets in one of the funniest moments I think in the movie is when Bill is in the bathroom, just <laughs> vomiting his guts out for, because of like alcohol poisoning. And then he just walks out and strolls out. And he's a very high class man, just like, oh, like, oh, hello, young chap, kind of, kind of. Right. And they have this kind of chance meeting. And then it turns out Bill is a bit of a fraud. He's a horrible, drunken, abusive partner to his secretary slash lover. Um, and it, immediately that like, don't meet your heroes thing happens. Right. Then, and, yeah and there's this line i find it so funny it's such a throwaway line but i think it's so funny that uh at one point when he hits her uh and barton fink walks up and says like oh he's he's an asshole no what is he what is he called he's a oh he's a son of a bitch he's a son of a bitch i mean don't get me wrong he's a great writer <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. i find i don't know why i find that so funny but um, you know the character is based on uh, Faulkner. William Faulkner, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, which I thought was fascinating when I read it too. Um, I think it kind of plays along with that notion of like when you when you're writing for the pictures and you when you're in that in that contract at least at that time, it's like you are trapped, right? So like writing these plays about socialism 
seem very interesting, but like if you're playing the capitalism game, like you are trapped in the system and you have to find a way to kind of like deal with that. And so it's it kind of shows how in the same way that Barton Fink is trapped in this in this hotel with without being able to do anything. Uh, I think it shows how this character Mayhew has to kind of like is also trapped in this this in in his world where he can't do anything really with his art and he has just given up. Uh, yeah, perhaps in a different way that Barton Fink has, but but it's kind of like that same idea of like, well, he's just throwing away his excellent writing, just like him. He's just like churning out whatever he has to do and just survive. That is the ironic aspect of like trying to make successful left-wing art is that it's like right. you're, you, it, it's inherently part of a system that's so capitalist that you're 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 playing that game to get successful exactly which is so fascinating about the movie and about the movie business in general right yeah. which i was saying at the beginning this this conflict of 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 the social versus versus the individual of like socialism and capitalism in the sense that like you have to sell seats but you're also reaching a wide uh, amount of people that are usually, you know, working class people who are want to be distracted, go into it. So, so this debate of like of like the social versus versus the versus the private is, seems very fascinating to me in, in this movie. Yeah. A lot of movies deal with that too uh, when they're like when they reflect a little bit on the process of making movies. Cinema Paradiso comes to mind, for example. Yeah. Um, so um, I, I don't know, I find that, I think that is one of the elements of this movie that I like the most. Yes. Uh, because it very much reflects on the process of creating a movie and uh, yeah. in such a subtle way, you know, it's not like adaptation, which I also love that movie, but yes. uh, But it's very, but, but, but behind it is like, oh, the, the movie is very aware of itself. The script is yeah. very aware of itself. And that's a weird kind of curse too of trying to make something for working class audiences where like you want to make something that's meaningful and that addresses working class issues like a truly like a populist story. But if you look at populist filmmaking, like it's the company in this movie and what they're trying to do. The regular people, like they just want to go see a wrestling movie. Right. Like, like in real life, it's like you could make like the most... The, the, a movie with the most crystal clear populist politics and at the end of the day most working class people want to go see transformers or something because they just right. want escapism from their hard life and so exactly th there's tension in that too but then it's like well if i do make something with meaningful politics what is it for just to be consumed by other rich people that are going to go ah great job like right. you know that's <laughs> it's it's like something that i don't think the movie fully answers the question Results, too. no yeah, yeah you're right it doesn't but and that's what i love i love a movie that posits a question and bats it around a little bit and at the end yeah. says like well maybe we learned something maybe we didn't but now you're thinking totally. of the question yeah totally <laughs> and i think it's fair you know i uh you've mentioned it at the beginning i think it's very fair if someone doesn't like this movie because it does feel like uh, so many things are left left unsaid and uh, unresolved. I think that, of course, is part of, to me, what makes it great. But it's like, I can't blame anybody who's like, what's happening? What's the point of this? So...
totally get it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I actually have to tell you, like, you know, I know you're very proud of being the only person in this club, but like after rewatching it, it might be my favorite Coen Brothers movie too. What? And well, it's yes. like something like Fargo, like Fargo does appeal to me in a lot of ways. I would have said before that was my favorite one too. It might be, but like, and it does appeal to me in a lot of ways where it's kind of about the sort of the evil lurking below like mm-hmm. small town, nice Americana. Yeah. Uh, but then I do, I love Barton Fink so much because I think it's a movie that's like, it, it's, it's definitely skewering the, the type of people like Hollywood and the people that it comes from Hollywood or New York or the coasts, like uh, the, the idea of being an intellectual making art for people. And I think that's such a fascinating idea. It's, it seems to also be sort of the most political thing that the Coens have done for that reason, where it's, True. it's both political and not like, it's not the movie itself isn't about class issues, but it's about the idea of class issues. Right. Is the is a movie about people thinking about class issues? Yeah. In a way, you know. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I, you know, I mean, I, I, I told you Barton Fink is my favorite. It, it depends on the day. I mean, I'm also with you on like debating it with Fargo, and that's why I was like between both of them. I know Fargo is uh, much more of a, a, mo- a more popular uh, movie and it's so great. I could talk hours about Fargo too, but, um, but yeah, I love, I love the, I love this movie so much. I think it's so interesting. Um, the performances, uh, the ambiguity of it, the, the, the backstories of it, of like Faulkner, this Faulkner presence, the fact that they wrote it as a, as a, you know, uh, when they were in, um, what do you call it? Um, writer's block wow yeah. my brain was blocked for a that's second. funny yeah um <laughs> yeah what do you call that when you can um so i don't know i think it's great i love it if if uh any of your listeners hasn't uh watch it they should yeah and i'll definitely tell them in the intro like to make sure that they to try to go see it first because um um i think it's really nice without the surprises spoiled um has anybody I, done another cohen movie here in this podcast i think this is the first one. Oh, nice actually All right yeah yeah i think this might be the first one um I, I, one thing is we talked so much about like John Goodman and Michael Lerner and all these guys and how good they are in the movie. I don't know if I talked that much about John Turturro, but I also think it's maybe my favorite performance I've ever seen from him. Like the way that he touches all these different modes and it climaxes with that incredible moment at the USO dance where he's give, he has this God complex and he's giving this insane speech right. like I create and he's trying to say that his job is more important than the Marines <laughs> and all of this stuff. Like, right. It's such an incredible so, moment. Right. And so far away from what his I, quote unquote ideals are, you know, yeah. like this superiority complex. Um, and he's dancing like crazy. Oh my God. He's yeah. great. He's great in this movie, which is saying a lot because he has some great uh, performances, of course. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, he's, he's one of those actors too. That's just like almost everything in his filmography is, uh, he's incredible. Um, I, uh, I wrote down, so I, I collected a couple Letterboxd reviews. I don't know if you've ever been on Letterboxd. It's uh, it's like a social media for reviewing movies. Um, so speaking right. of people who might not like it, there's a half star review here. A guy just wrote, fuck your symbolisms. And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. You have to tell me what that means. If you want to say right. fuck your symbolisms, <laughs> then uh, elaborate a little bit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> 
um yeah real great writers this one this one's actually kind of fun uh barton fink barton stinks all right (laughs) okay actually okay i'm looking a lot of them are saying barton stink like they all think they're the first person who thought of it (laughs) um oh right okay this is a great one i think not all right (laughs) (laughs) i think not oh my god that's funny that reminds me of uh uh have you read about that i think it was a roger ebert review that it was like the shortest review ever for a movie called isn't this wonderful isn't it romantic isn't it romantic i don't think it was ebert i think it was like leonard malton or something oh yeah you might be right and the review was just (laughs) no no (laughs) (laughs) beautiful yeah so good um keeping it short i i specifically read the silly ones because all of the ones where people really get into it i was like well that's not so fun to laugh at (laughs) right um and also you know they're probably saying the same things we said but in a negative way (laughs) right right if you say like oh there's no resolution in the film it's like oh yeah it's hell whatever it's like yeah <laughs> so somebody could just take the transcript of this podcast change the tone of voice and it'll just be us shitting on the movie yeah right. there's no resolution <laughs> all the things we just said yeah <laughs> um all right yeah, man well exactly. i think uh I, I think i think that does it i think we we actually did it it's done we succeeded um if we you ever if you ever want to come back and do fargo or anything like that maybe a year from now we can finally set that up <laughs> listen let's set a date right now so that by 2025 before russia invades us we can <laughs> find us some time to do it or maybe we should learn russian in advance so oh my god we do record let's the do episode it. we're prepared let's do that we'll All record right. a, about a, a russian movie oh my god i don't know why we're talking about this <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're just dating ourselves uh yeah yeah uh <laughs> All right, Thanks well, for having me, man. This is fun. Uh, any any time, dude. I'm up for talking about movies uh, always, and it was a fun rewatch. So, yeah, anytime. Gone are the days when my heart was young and gay. Gone. All right, everybody. That wraps up another episode of We Are Movies. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Esteban for coming on. I really appreciate it. Definitely go follow him on all the social media stuff. He's on Instagram and Twitter at Esteban Tuma. Also, if you're in the area, I definitely recommend buying tickets to see him at the Independent Comedy Club April 22nd and 23rd in Hamtramck. Tickets to go see that show are in the description of this episode. Also, if you're a fan of this podcast and you haven't yet, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at We Are Movies Pod. You can also follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd at Johnny Mockney, J O H N N Y M O C N Y. Oh, there's also a Facebook page for the podcast, We Are Movies. You can also you can follow us there too. And um, that is all I have for you today. I'll be back with you very soon. And until then, this is Johnny Mockney saying. I'm a podcaster, celebrating the completion of something good. Do you understand that, sailor? I'm a podcaster. I'm a podcaster, you monsters. I podcast. This is my uniform. This is how I serve the common man.